Welcome to the Fabulously Keto podcast aimed at improving health, vitality and quality of life. Eating real food in a ketogenic lifestyle. I'm Jackie Fletcher and I'm based in the UK. And I'm Louise Reynolds, an Aussie currently based in Bangkok, Thailand. Each week we will be bringing you guests who share their stories and discuss a range of topics which we hope will improve your health and well-being. Many of the guests, like us, came to Keto for Weight Loss and have stayed for their well-being, numerous health benefits and because they are living their best lives. We hope you will be inspired to incorporate these ideas into your own health journey so that you can feel better than you ever have before. Thinking about starting keto? Take a listen to episode number two, What is Keto and How to Start? Welcome to episode 56 of the Fabulously Keto podcast. And today, or tomorrow actually, is our first anniversary, Louise. What do you think of that? We made it to one year. Well, Jackie, I think both of us really want to take this opportunity to thank the listeners and thank you for coming on the journey with us in producing the Fabulously Keto podcast. You know, we, we couldn't have done it without you. And Jackie, tell let's sort of reveal how many listens that we've had so far. So we've had 25,000 listens so far. So that's really good. Uh, well, I don't know how good it is, actually. But um, yeah, we're pleased with it, aren't we? Yes, our little podcast. And, I, you know, we've overcome some time zone differences with our scheduling. And we've managed to turn up every week. And we thank all 25,000 of you for coming on this journey with us. So Louise, what's, what's been your favourite podcast this year? That's a really mean question, Jackie. It's like asking me to pick my favourite child. Now, <laughs> that's you can't do that because they're all my favourite. Okay, so <laughs> what, what, what are some of the highlights then? That's better. I can, I can talk to perhaps maybe, I don't know, two. I think there's two distinct themes for me, you know, in terms of reflecting on this year. And that's really... I know that the listeners are probably going, oh, she's going to say lived experience. So, <laughs> and it really is about the lived experience of, um, of our guests. And we've been really privileged to hear, for me, it's those two stories. And the two stories is obviously the lived experience of how, um, our guests have overcome that issue, you know, whether it's, you know, overweight, it's metabolic ill health, managing their diabetes, their chronic pain conditions, from that that individual experience. And then we've been able to have obviously a variety of health and medical professionals. And that's been absolutely fantastic being a, a registered paramedic myself to be able to hear that. And then when we've had that combined story where we've had the health and medical professional with that lived experience of being unwell, that's been the most powerful, uh, the powerful highlight for me. What yeah. about for you, Jackie? Turn the tables. Who was your favourite? Yeah, I, I have to say, I think in terms of recording a episode, I, I do have a favourite, which is actually the first one with Hannah and Bitter because we had such a laugh while we were doing it. And even when I um, listen back, it I can still remember, you know, it still brings up those how we were laughing so much. So I do sort of have a, a favourite, but we've had some great guests and I've really enjoyed 
I'm just in awe of being able to speak to these people and to um, talk to them and find out more about them. Because quite a lot of them, I don't know about for you, well, you've you've been to more conferences and you've seen more people than me. But for me, they're sort of people that I've heard of, but never met and never. It's a bit like going to the movies and you see these famous people on the screen and you never think you're going to meet them. But it's it's a bit like that, isn't it? You just actually talk to them and see them on your screen. You We haven't met them because we're all in different time zones. But um, that has just been awesome for me. And I think the thing that makes me so grateful is their time. They've been so generous with their time in as we as we do. I mean, the listeners are very conscious that they have an hour, you know, in terms of the actual recording, but we actually have spent a bit more time with the, the introductions and obviously, you know, the setup. So we could sometimes spend up to an hour and a half or two hours with, with the guests and that's a real privilege, which I'm eternally grateful for their time. Yeah. And I think for for us, well, for me, I, I can't speak for you, um, is I've thoroughly enjoyed being able to pay this forward to other people because we need to get the word out there. And I think what I've loved seeing is that there are so many people and we've only spoken to a few, you know, a handful of people in, in, in reality of people who are going against the conventional dogma and the conventional um, education of how people lose weight or how they, well, they, uh, currently there is no other way to reverse type 2 diabetes. They're only managing it. But also seeing all the different um stories that people have had because not everyone has type 2 diabetes we've seen so many other different conditions that have been helped through changing their diet and lifestyle well we've heard those stories around fibromyalgia obviously the chronic fatigue and me uh, other chronic pain conditions ibs and ibs uh lipedema and coming up and we've also had obviously type 1 type 1 diabetes so it's it's not just obviously the type 2 diabetes in terms of being metabolically unwell that there is obviously a spectrum and the benefits and the the improvements the well-being has just been been amazing yeah and not every guest that we've spoken to has been overweight to start with some people were fairly slim we've even spoken to some guests who didn't have any metabolic disease or any weight issues but they're still in the space promoting low carb and the other thing really is that they're not necessarily trying to reverse or you know attain remission as you said of diabetes but they're still using this approach to optimize their health or their athletic performance you mm-hmm. know, this is this is obviously a tool for that has a wider application yeah so we to celebrate our year's anniversary we reached out to and we've spoken a lot over the year about who is the one the one thing the one person the one book 
that got you into low carb. Um, so we reached out to our ones, didn't we? We reached out to Gary Taubes and to Professor Tim Noakes. So we've managed to get Professor Tim Noakes so far onto the onto the podcast and that's who we're interviewing today. So Louise, do you want to remind everyone about your one and how it came about? Unbeknownst to me, my mum was already low carb and I didn't really know that she had found Professor Tim Noakes's Real Meal Revolution and Grant Schofield's What the Fat and was had been eating low carb for some time. After my sustaining those serious injuries from the motorcycle crash and really managing my pain, my mum sort of suggested perhaps I should change the way that I eat. And she brought me her copy of The Real Meal Revolution. And that's really where I started with my low-carb way of eating, was reading both Tim Noakes' Real Meal Revolution and Grant Schofield's What's the Fat book. So that was really, you're right, you know, a moment in time where I was influenced by Tim Noakes and his work in the Real Meal Revolution. And even to this day, Jackie, I still make those delicious seed crackers um, that has become quite a staple in my in my home with lashings of butter and Vegemite. So, um, yeah, it was a real privilege to be able to to speak with Professor Noakes as we did to celebrate our first anniversary. And I suppose for some of those listeners that may not be aware, why don't you? But anyway, um, no, tell us a bit more about Professor Tim Noakes. Professor Noakes studied at the University of Cape Town, obtaining an MBCHB degree and an MD and a DSC in exercise science. He's now an adjunct professor at the Cape Peninsula University of Technology. Following his retirement from the research unit of exercise science and sports medicine, in 1995 he was a co-founder of the now prestigious Sports Science Institute of South Africa. He's been rated an A1 scientist by the National Research Foundation of South Africa for a third five-year term. In 2008, he received the order of, oh, this is a good African word, Louise, Mapungubwe. Now, I probably said that wrong, so apologies. He received the order of Mapungwe. Ma, <laughs> the order he, of he received Mapungwe. an award. Mapungwe. Anyway, silver from the President of South Africa for his excellent contribution in the field of sports and science of physical exercise. Um, Professor Noakes has published more than 750 scientific books and articles. He's been cited more than 21,000 times in scientific literature and has an H index of 77. Do you know what an H index is, Louise? It's like a rating of the number of times a an author has been cited. Ah, okay. He has won numerous awards over the years and made himself available on many editorial boards. He has authored many books. In 2003, he received the UCT Book Award for Law of Running, fourth edition, considered to be the Bible for runners. Since 2011, he has written his autobiography, Challenging Beliefs, Memoirs of a Career. Published Waterlogged, 
the serious problem of overhydration in endurance sports in 2012, published The Real Meal Revolution in 2013, co-authored with Jono Proudfoot, David Greer and Sally and Creed, and following that, the child-focused version of this book, Raising Superheroes, in 2015. The latter two are now also published overseas. In 2014, he co-wrote Always Believe in Magic with Kevin Muskinath and Jonathan Kaplan, which was the story of the UCT Ike Tigers journey to winning the 2014 Varsity Cup. The Banting Pocket Guide was published in 2017, co-authored with Bernadine Douglas and Bridget Allen. And most recently, he has co-authored The Law of Nutrition with Marika Soros. This This details his journey from prosecution to innocence. Following the publication of his best-selling book, The Real Meal Revolution, he founded the Noakes Foundation, the focus of which is to raise funding to support high-quality research of the eating plan described in the book. He is now the co-founder and chief medical director of the Nutrition Network and devotes a majority of his time to promoting the low-carbohydrate, high-fat diet, especially with for those with insulin resistance and on raising funds for Eat Better South Africa and research through the Noakes Foundation. He is highly acclaimed in his field and at age 72 he is still physically active taking part in races up to 21 kilometres. Welcome Professor Tim to the Fabulously Keto podcast. It's fabulous to have you with us today. Thanks Jackie and thanks Louise. Lovely to be with you today. Looking forward to our session together. Yeah. So we always start by asking, where in the world are you? I'm in Cape Town, South Africa, which is right at the tip of tip of Africa. It was settled in 1652 as a way station to treat scurvy, to prevent scurvy in the British sailors and, and well, in fact, in the Dutch sailors going to the east. So they would get their scurvy. And by the way, scurvy, we knew how to prevent scurvy probably before that, but it, the evidence got lost. Mm. The very first randomized controlled clinical trial was run on, on testing how you treat scurvy. <laughs> I did it, did it wonderful. And that's where the randomized controlled trials come from. He took 12 sailors with scurvy and he broke them, into, broke them into six groups and he fed them their various different things that the one got oranges and lemons and they got better in five days and this is a disease that was was considered irreversible and deadly much like diabetes is today and he was able to show that the scurvy could be prevented by by oranges and lemons yeah <laughs> there well, we go First random control trial. trial. And and it was just sort of, you know, and science obviously has been a passion, a passion for you in terms of your career and your contribution to the community. So I think this is going to be a a thank you um, to Professor Noakes for his contribution because without you, and this is a real credit to you, is that you (laughs) helped me, or via my mum, um, unbeknownst to me, my mum actually had the Real Meal Revolution, so your your book. And um, at the time, having had lost you know a significant amount of weight, and I had actually had a quite a serious motorcycle accident and had some sustained some sort of critical injuries, but obviously dealing with chronic pain. So my mum said, "Why don't you have a think about the way the food can help you with your chronic pain?" and Here's something that might help you on your journey. 
So unbeknownst to me, my mum had already been low carb for quite some time, so she didn't want to freak me out by having high fat or healthy fat. And it was your book that started certainly me and my mum on my journey. So thank you to you. Um, and obviously your co-authors. I can't sort of forget Jono and um, in Absolutely. In so, well, thank you. That's great. So, lovely to hear that story. Thank you for telling us and sharing it. So yeah. oh, I was going to say, so um, tell us how you came, because there's a whole thing. We can either go pre-low carb, you finding low carb, and your absolute passion for carb loading, which is really interesting. <laughs> or should we start there? Yeah, I think that's a that's a great place to start. Well, it goes right back to 1969, 1970, when I was just starting out as a medical student. And the first studies came out of Sweden, uh, of the Scandinavian countries, showing that if you started exercise with lots of glycogen, that's carbohydrate in the muscles, you could perform better. And those were not randomized controlled trials. They were kind of observational studies. And when you go back and look at them, they were horrendous. But nevertheless, because this was such a novel idea, it was just grasped. And the scientists who promoted it were very, very good at promoting their ideas. Uh, and, and some of them became very famous subsequently. But it, it, it really wasn't hard science. And so, but anyway, I'm a medical student. I read these papers. I'm an athlete. I'm doing endurance athlete athleticism. And I, now I'm the expert. You must eat lots of carbohydrates. And I'm, this is the reason. This is the biology. And so I start sprouting this and writing articles. And in fact, the main thing I was sprouting in those days was making sure you drink a lot during exercise. And then the carbohydrates came along thereafter. So anyway, I obviously changed to high carbohydrate diet, having been raised by my mother who had grown up on a high protein, high fat diet because her father sold meat. <laughs> he was a meat dealer. <laughs> and she always said, you know, meat's good for you. And she said, eat the fish. It's good for your brains and so on. And we used to get awful for breakfast, which was in the 50s and 60s. And then I would go to medical school and I'd become clever. No, you can't have that. You've got to have your carbs. And so we went on to these grains and cereals. And I, my running peaked. And then the more carbs I ate, the worse it got. But of course, I didn't notice that. And couldn't explain it because it was so contrary to the beliefs. So anyway, I ate this diet for 33 years. And eventually, one morning, by chance, I arrive home having had the worst run of my life, I think. <laughs> and I open my emails and there's an advert saying, lose six pounds in six weeks without hunger. And I read this and it's the book, the, the New Atkins for the New You. So I say, I am disgusted at these men. Dr. Westman, how can you link yourself to Atkins? Because I know I was trained in cardiology and medicine and that Atkins tried to kill us all. And if you mention Atkins' name, you got thrown out of the profession. So now how could you do this? So I went and bought the book. I was so angry. I went and bought the book. <laughs> they had the last copy. I came home. And after two hours reading, I said, oh, my gosh, I got it all wrong. And, and why did I know? Because we, they quoted 150 scientific papers and they were in good journals. They were in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition and various other journals. So I knew this had to be good stuff. So, of course, I started reading the articles. And then within a day or two, I said, no more carbohydrates. And that was it. And my health just improved dramatically. And, and then I discovered I was type 2 diabetic, which I then have since reversed on the start. So that was my turning point. And the, the point, I, the problem I faced 
was that I lost 20 kilograms, you see, in, in like three months. And people said, you've got cancer. What's wrong with you? <laughs> so, because, and so now what do I say? Do I say, yes, I've got cancer? Or do I say, no, I should change my diet? And so I had this dilemma. And so eventually I, I said, I've changed my diet. Now, the, the problem was that I was being funded by a medical aid company. And I was their spokesperson for their diet. And what was their diet? It was the high carb, etc. And so within a few weeks, suddenly I got a cold shoulder and the money dried up. <laughs> Eventually, all the funding disappeared, which they said, you know, they'd been very helpful to me. So I can't blame them. But but that that was the, the consequence of changing the diet was that I was excommunicated and I lost all my funding. But in the end, that's, that was a small price. Fortunately, I was in my final year, final two years as an academic. So if this had happened 10 years earlier, it would have been catastrophic for my career, absolutely catastrophic. Do you think that that was some of the issues that perhaps were facing Steve Finney very early on in his research, that he was in that sort of you know, dilemma about where his research actually went? And that sort of resonates yeah, uh, with you. absolutely. Absolutely. I think and Eric Westman and Jeff Volek, all three of them suffered in that way. And I'm, I became very friendly with Jeff and I was asked to write a review. And I said, you know, this guy should win a Nobel Prize because the research he's done is so astonishing. It covers everything about the low-carb diet and its benefits in reversing metabolic disease. It's, it's all there, and, and it, but it's just hidden. And, and Jeff told me, he said, I, every year I'd apply to the National Institute of Health and as soon as you mention low carbs, you're not going to get any funding. So you're quite right, Steve and Jeff and Eric, completely isolated. I mean, the big karma, the irony is that Jeff and, and Eric Westman, not, not sorry, not Jeff and Steve are now co-founders of Verta Health, which is a company that's now, is now rated at worth $3 billion. So I think that in the end, they'll, be, they'll end up very wealthy men. So it didn't matter that they had to, their, their careers were put on hold for, for 20 years or so. Yeah. But we must see that with other researchers that, that maybe they understand low carb, maybe they've tried it, they've done it themselves, but they're kept quiet because of their future and what that means to them and how their life will un unfold if they speak out. And so they don't say anything. Absolutely. And you know, the, the, so of course, you have John Yadkin in, in Britain, who exactly that happened to him, his career was utterly destroyed. Mm -hmm. And then Robert Lustig comes along 40 years later and repeats essentially what he said, Robert didn't even know that about Yadkin, he had no clue that the man called Yadkin existed. And then of course, he acknowledged him. So he's the first, but the, the really bad one is Gerald Raven from Stanford mm -hmm. University, because he had worked out that a high carbohydrate diet raises triglycerides and gives you fatty liver. He describes this in the 1960s. And then he starts using low carbohydrate diets. And he, he feeds people, I think, about 20%, 30% carbohydrate. And he notices they get better. He doesn't then go to 10% and 5%. He stops. And in fact, he reverses. And he goes back to 45% carbohydrate diets. And then he writes a book talking with his diet and I think the metabolic syndrome diet or something. And he falls right in between. It doesn't help anything. It's a high carbohydrate diet, which is low in saturated fats. It's, it's a disaster because he can't, he, he was too scared. 
And I know exactly what would have happened. He's at Stanford. Stanford were one of the leading cardiovascular research units in the world. If he'd come up in the 1970s and said, guys, you got it wrong, you got to eat more fat, he would have been excommunicated. And he was clever enough to say, I won't go that far. I'll research this insulin resistance syndrome, but I'm never going to go the low, very low carb story. The reality is if he had continued, if he'd just done that one other, one additional experiment of dropping the carbohydrate content to five to 10%, he would have solved the problem right there and then. And long before Eric and Jeff and Steve, he would have solved the problem and he had the credibility, but, but he couldn't do it for the reasons we've discussed. Hmm. It's sad, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's all about the funding. Um, and it's all funded by food industry and pharma. Yeah. And, and the, you know, what happened to me when I got excommunicated by my, by university, by my, and my profession. And eventually I had to, I had to extract myself from the profession because I was just going to be charged every time I said anything, they would charge me and I would just been in court all the time. And so the profession is completely captured. It's, it's so sad that these people will not tell the truth. And then all they do is, I mean, even a few weeks ago, two of my colleagues, ex-colleagues, they attacked me on Twitter again. You know, it's just, it's unbelievable. But they, they still, I won the case, guys. I was right. Can't you admit it? Can't you teach people what is true? So I must just, you know, say at this point that, that that one of the things that when when I was excommunicated by my university, they to publicly humiliate me, they they had a, a debate which they called the debate of the century, the University of Cape Town nutrition debate of the century or something. And they called the most important cardiovascular epidemiologist in the world who happened to be related, who had some relationship to the University of Cape Town. They called him back to debate me. And in the week before the debate, the diet doctor, Andreas Ienfeld, came to visit us from Sweden. And I told him about the debate. Oh, he said, oh, but have you read Professor Rousseau's paper, 2006 paper? So I said, yeah, but, but he said, did you notice something? I said, no, no, what do you mean? So he opens the paper, and the page seven of the article, it says there that essentially in academic terms, or it says that the women with heart disease who ate the low-fat, heart-healthy, prudent diet had a 26% increased risk of getting additional heart problems. And it was hidden. And then we looked at the table, and the table had been manipulated so you couldn't see it. So if all you did was look at the table, you would miss that point. And it was the only significant finding was harm caused by the start. So a few months ago, I went and said, I wonder where the Women's Health Initiative has gone now. And so I found two papers, one from 2017 and one from 2019. And the 2017 paper showed now that this group, who were previously at a 26% increased risk, are now at a 60% increased risk. So that completely destroys the whole study. But yet, they had tried to hide it. And they'd explained it, oh, you see, we, this data is, is fake, false, because of all X, Y, and Z, which were completely fallacious explanations. So I wrote this article, which was published in the British Medical Journal Open Heart, about two weeks ago, and the title is Hiding Unhealthy Heart Outcomes in a Low-Fat Diet Trial. Hiding Unhealthy Heart Outcomes in a Low-Fat Diet Trial. And that's, that's just been published, and I'll put it there, so if anyone wants to, Great. to see it a bit more. We'll link it we'll, in we'll the show notes. Show notes. Yeah. Show notes. Yeah. 
And, and, and what I show there is that it's now unethical. It's completely unethical for any doctor to prescribe a low-fat diet for a person with established heart disease. I go further. I think it's unethical if you've got insulin resistance. Uh, but because I said the, the reason why these, these women struggled with a low-fat diet because they were insulin resistant. And so, so there we have it. It's now unethical. And it's interesting that there's been no comeback at all because there can't be any comeback because those are the facts. Yeah. So, so ultimately, the most, the biggest diet trial in history, $700 million proved what we've been saying. You don't put people with insulin resistance on a low-fat diet because you're just going to make them sick. But think of all those women like my mother who are in their 70s now that – you know, through she was obviously a young woman in her her twenties in the sixties, the seventies, the eighties, and I endured you know margarine, white bread, um, low fat cottage cheese, and that sort of stuff as I was growing up as a teenager in the eighties. You know, it's just you know it's just so sad. It's frustrating. It's disappointing. It's anger. And I think, you know, one of the biggest things that, as you said about the Women's Health Initiative for me, and I love that chapter in Nina Teichholz's book about why women need fat. You know, we are, we need fat for our hormones. We need fat, you know, for our brains. We need fat. But yet this message, and as you said, this cognitive dissonance in going back, let's circle back and say, here's the evidence, we need fat. It just the cognitive dissonance is as wide as the Grand Canyon. We, I don't see any recommendations changing. Do you see that it's ever going to change? Is there too much investment for dietary yeah. advice to change? So one of the things we've been working on uh, from the Lakes Foundation is on Nutrition Network is a textbook on low carbs, and we've got some of the best people in the world contributing. And my job, a few chapters, but one is on the history of the dietary guidelines. And fortunately, I went back into what was said in 1977 by the people who were critiquing the guidelines. Already in 1977, they said, this is ridiculous. There's no evidence this diet's going to work. How can you put this experiment, put all Americans on this experiment without having the data? It is astonishing. And now 70 years later, since the very first dietary guidelines, we, we know the evidence. It was quite the wrong thing to do. But as you said, it's not going to be reversed. But the, the doubts were always there. There were always people saying, this experiment is not going to work. Now we know it hasn't worked. Hmm. But know. it's interesting you say that the data wasn't there. But obviously, as we know, that there was the Ansel Keys data. I'll put that in inverted quotes, you know, like in inverted you know, quotes, air quotes. But there was obviously some manipulation of the data or obviously a position statement to to obviously introduce yeah. those guidelines. No, you're quite right. Ansel Key's data, his Minnesota coronary experiment had was about or had just been published. But unfortunately, they, they falsified the data. And uh, when it was reanalyzed properly, it showed the opposite, that converting with eating more polyunsaturated fats actually increased uh, death rates amongst the particularly older people. So, but they, the evidence wasn't there. And the other point someone made to me recently was that the American Heart Association and the National Institute of Health were so captured that they only ever studied low-fat diets. They never studied a low-carb diet. 
no studies of, of interventions were ever done with that. It's interesting that the Women's Health Initiative, now that the old guard have sort of disappeared, I think they've got a couple of youngsters in there looking at those people, women, who actually did eat a low-carb diet, who restricted their carbs. And they found that they were the ones who lost the most weight and they didn't gain weight with time. So I don't know if we're ever going to see any more data from that. But the, the irony was that the low-fat diet didn't help with weight loss. But the subgroup of women who were not told to eat a, a high-fat, low-carbohydrate diet, but did so anyway, were the ones who did best in terms of weight loss and prevention of weight regain. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's just mind-boggling, absolutely mind-boggling how all this science, well, it gets past the science, even though there's no real scientific basis for it. I, I just, you know, with this, the COVID story and, Someone said that virology has become, we used to be a branch of medicine, but now it's a branch of politics. And, and nutrition was always a branch of politics. It's never been a branch of science. Hmm. So that's, that's the, I think, the, one of the best ways to look at it. That's oh. probably why they don't teach it to doctors. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. But I thought it was about hashtag armchair epidemiologists. You know, we're all armchair epidemiologists. We yeah. all know what ref scores are now and all that sort of stuff. So, um, yeah. you know, but it's it's interesting that, you know, as you said about the politics and nothing more political than, than obviously your trial. So why don't you talk us through, um, you know, I suppose some reflections from, from that particular, you know, experience. Yeah. So uh, for those who don't know, um, when the, my university decided to publicly humiliate me, they, the first thing they did, they started publishing letters in the newspaper saying that I was anti-statins and anti-this and anti-that and that I was a quack and so on. And, and that's completely unethical because I, I was trained in a medical profession where you didn't criticize your colleagues publicly. But the university did this. And the irony was the very first letter came out the day I got an award for being the top scientist in South Africa. It's the, <laughs> this is huge award. And so, <laughs> I mean, this just shows you how planned it was. So I'm just handed this award. And the next thing, my cell phone rings, and it's the guy from the newspaper. This is now nine o'clock in the evening. He says, listen, tomorrow morning, we're publishing this letter from your colleagues at the University of Cape Town and Kruderskir Hospital. Saying, that, saying these things about you. So I said, well, what did they say? So then I obviously answered it to some extent. So the next morning, when the, the headlines in the newspapers, not Tim Noakes wins the top scientist award, is Tim Noakes is accused of quackery by his colleagues. <laughs> so, so that was astonishing. So then, but the real moment came when I was asked to go and speak to the wellness group of the parliament, not to parliament, to the wellness group, which I do often I'd speak to lots of people about how they should monitor their diet and so I spoke and I said listen we've got a problem in South Africa we've got diabetes and it's an explosion and it's going to cause all sorts of problems and we need to address it and the way you address it is you should eat low carbohydrate diets I didn't mention my book once I didn't mention anything about the idea that 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 I'd written a book about it but right at the end, the Speaker of the House came up and he said, I've got your book, would you sign it? So I signed it and there's a picture taken. So the next, I wake up next morning and there on the front page is myself with the Speaker of the House and I'm signing this book. Two days later, my university sends a letter from four senior professors saying Noakes has taken his revolution to Parliament. 
which was not true. They never asked me. And then they said, this fills us with you know, great concern. And then they give all the reasons why this low-carb diet is going to kill everyone in South Africa. They're all going to get heart disease, blah, blah, blah. Now, this is written by four professors. They didn't speak to me. And all I would have said to them is, so, Professor, the last patient you saw with heart attack or with diabetes, tell me what he was eating. Was he eating this diet or was he eating the conventional diet? That's all I had to ask. There wasn't one reference to it. Now, why did they write that letter? Because at that very time, I had been investigated for a tweet that I had sent. And the tweet was simply a mother asked for babies and mothers, not, not for baby and mother, but for babies and mothers, what sort of diet would you advise? Because she had some problems. And I said, a low-carb, high-fat diet, LCHF diet. Within 12 hours, I'd been reported to the Health Professions Council hmm. for, for killing people and giving the wrong information and so on and so forth. So the committee, now what happens now is this, the Health Professions Council forms a committee and the committee meets. And that committee had two people who knew me extremely well. They were both from my university. And it had five other people, but it had two people who really knew me, including my former professor of surgery, who'd given me an award once for being the best surgical student in, in, the, in the medical class. And it goes much closer. We were actually quite close to him for many other reasons. So, the, so you'd think he'd be rational. Anyway, they look at the evidence and they look at my response, the charge and my response, and they say, we can't decide. So what they do next is they said, well, we'll get more information. And the first thing they get is this letter from the four professors of Cape Town University, which incidentally has been circulated to all the universities in South Africa and to the Minister of Health. And they get another paper written by Nordia et al. from a local university, which says that the low-carb diet doesn't work any better than a high-carb diet. So, what did, so when that paper comes out, that is sent to the committee. And on the basis of those two bits of evidence, they decide to charge me. And so I'm charged with, with malpractice because I'm promoting a low-carb diet, which is unscientific, not scientifically based. It's not evidence-based and it's potentially harmful, et cetera. And it's on social media. So that's uh, disgraceful conduct, et cetera. And so then... I then have to decide what to do. So they give me an option of just take a lesser charge. And I said to the lawyer, listen, I'm not stopping here. We're going the whole way. And fortunately, two of the best lawyers in South Africa came along and said, we will defend you for nothing because this is, a, this is an issue of freedom of speech as much as anything. And, and we know you. And the, the, one, the senior counsel said, Tim, all I want you to do is you just get all the evidence and we're going to go to court and you're going to give that evidence until they are exhausted. The prosecution is mm -hmm. completely, utterly exhausted. So, so, so as happens, the prosecution starts with their case. And their case flounders from the first witness they're in trouble. And they just get worse and worse and worse. So, and it takes, fortunately, it took about a year and a half for us to, even for, to get me onto the, onto the, the to give evidence. By which time I had a year and a half to prepare my defense. And I mean, by now the defense was pretty strong. Whereas had it been a year and a half earlier, I wouldn't have been as knowledgeable as I was. So anyway, we had 12 days in court under oath, cross-examination, and we presented six, 7,000 pages of evidence. And you all know Nina Teichold 
author of The Big Fat Surprise came out. Zoe Harcom, who just finished her PhD, she's an absolute genius, completely unrecognized genius. Well, she's a genius, so that's why people hate her so much, because she's brilliant. And then Karen Zinn, who is really interesting, because mm -hmm. Karen is a is a dietitian who I taught at the University of Cape Town and told her, carbs, carbs, carbs. And she'd gone to <laughs> New Zealand to Auckland. And she'd arrived in Auckland and her, she'd gone to the professor like about around about the time I started talking. And she said, you know, Prof, I've been reading this stuff about this high fat diet. And I mean, I know it's quackery, but I really think we should just look into it, you see. So she looks into it and a month later, she comes to him and I said, Prof, I, you know, there's really something in this diet. And he, he Grant Schofield, is mm -hmm. so open to new ideas. Within, he went like this. Within five minutes, he said, no, that, you're right. We absolutely have to change. And so they became the Auckland, mm -hmm. the institute there is one of the leading promoters of the low-carb diet. So that was how that came. So Karen came along and she also gave her evidence. So over 12 days. And the funny, the, there were so many funny moments. But the, the funny moment was, was a, a year later or so, I noticed the chief prosecution lawyer had lost 20 kilograms. And he came to me and he said, hi, prof, you know. I said, you're looking well. He said, yeah, my diabetes is in reversal. <laughs> <That's been> <laughs> so I didn't say, well, how did you do it? <laughs> because he <laughs> <you> knew. <laughs> You'd convinced uh, him. Was that after the trial, though? Is yeah, that the, when the trial finished? The next, because it went on so long and then it went back to appeal. So it dragged on for four years. So it was before the end that he acknowledged that. <laughs> the other funny moment was when Nina had given her evidence, you see, and then with, with me, I'd been on the three days cross-examination. So we expected her to be cross-examined for at least a day. So he said, the first question he asked is, so tell me, Ms. Tarkold, when are you going back to the United States? So she says, no, I'm going in a day or two's time. So he said, well, I hope you enjoy your trip because thank you for coming. And that was it. <laughs> End of discussion. <laughs> it was so clear, good, that he had nothing to ask her. <laughs> I think you also, at one of your presentations, you mentioned about the, the defence team were, obviously they powered through the day being low carb. They had no 3 p.m. sleepies. And you were sort of saying yeah. about the prosecution team were sort of having little sort of nano micro sleeps at 3 o'clock in the afternoon and the the defense team were powering through because they were just energized. Yeah, that's right. And the, 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 the lady who's in charge, who became a great friend and in fact has worked with on Nutrition Network on, on ethics. And on one day she said, well, I think we're going to have to go on for another hour. And so Mike van der Nest, who was our main counsel, he said, that's no problem for us. We're all keto. We just get stronger the longer the day. <laughs> <laughs> it must... I mean, you're looking back now and you're laughing and, you know, things have happened to you that have turned out for the best for you, probably. Yeah. But at the time, it must have been very scary for you and your family. Yeah, I know it was horrible. It really was horrible because, see, what happened was I was mobbed. That, that's the issue. And so I couldn't, so I, my university turned against me, so no one, I could trust no one at the university. The institute that I started and where I went to work each day, everyone there, because they didn't know. You know, they'd been told that Noakes is a problem. I mean, literally, that's what they were told. Do not associate with him because he's a problem. So there was the university, there was my department, and there was the Institute of Sports Science that I'd started. So there was no one there I could trust, and no one came forward and was supportive, not one. 
when the trial over the four years, about three people from my department actually came and listened. That was it. The rest ran away. But what you do learn, as is as Sir Jeffrey Archer said, under these circumstances, you know, the, the people who come towards you, those are the people that you hold. And so I definitely had some post-traumatic stress disorder, no question that that, for example, when we won the initial case and then they said they go, it's going to appeal for a week, I felt dreadful. And, the, and it would happen like that. Anyone would talk about the trial and I would get this depressed feeling. And it, it was awful, but now I'm over it, uh, fortunately. But it does take time. Yes, it was terrible when we went through it. And my wife said, you know, she used to look at my countenance and it really worried her. But, but we went through that now and it's... But, but it's the mobbing and it's the fact that these professors of medicine and deans of faculties didn't ask the question, now, if we send this letter, what's going to be the impact on Tim Noakes, who's done so much for this university? What's it going to be impact on him? And they didn't ask that question because it's these psychopaths who run the show. That's it. And they don't care about you. They were being pressurized by industry. I have absolutely no doubt. It came right from the top of the, the vice chancellor of the university was saying, you've got to sort no out. And, and these are the people who are running universities in, in this country. And I guess they're exactly the same yeah, around sure. the world. Yeah. yeah. They just have no ethics. Because, no, I mean, you, you could have very easily turned around and said, actually, I'm not going to fight this. It's not worth the hassle. It's not worth the expense. But your moral feeling was I have to stand up and I have to say something because this is what I truly believe and there aren't many people like that in the world <laughs> the, the, the fortunately they, they also you know they they tried to destroy my entire career and and that was I wasn't going to allow that to happen and it, maybe if they hadn't now I always would have fought this one but uh, but that was defending my entire career that which they were just trying to destroy hmm. and it, it's interesting so so i you know, this article which spoke about the hiding unhealthy heart outcomes, I've sent it to colleagues at the faculty and I just said, I wonder if you will ever acknowledge this and teach it. Because this is what, in my debate with the guy who heads up the Women's Health Initiative, this is exactly what I said. And I said, it's true now. What are you guys going to do? Just mm -hmm. keep teaching the wrong stuff. But I think that's sort of, let's circle back to your legacy, you know, and the fact that your legacy, you know, in terms of, yeah, there was a body of work that was about, you know, in terms of the law of running. And that was obviously, it's contextual, you know, that was the best, you know, advice or the best research that you were doing at the time. But there are iterations in every career, there's iterations. And then obviously, you've had this moment of, you know, well, we're going to sort of take a different tact. And this is my chapter two. And this is obviously the dissonance between obviously what was before to what was now, but the legacy, the Noakes Foundation, the fact that you have changed lives. You know, I mean, I know that I'm, you know, me and my mum, you know, but you have changed so much. And I think that's the, the legacy that you're left with. But you're right, you know, the legacy that's going to be left for future generations in medical education, in nutrition science, medical science, but in general health, you know, well-being is obviously, you know, that trickle-down, you know, trickle-down mm -hmm. nutrition education is, you know, it may take longer, but the legacy now, today, that is something that you should be so proud of, the fact that you have changed millions and millions of lives. 
despite, well, that's, as that's, you said, despite yeah. you said about that post-traumatic, you know, trauma stuff, you know, it's, yeah. you know, you can't see the forest for the trees, but um, yeah. yeah. Thanks, Louise. You know, last night I had a, a, a podcast with a guy called himself Big Daddy Liberty. So he's a Zulu speaking South African who's weighing 220 kilograms and his doctor said, listen, Big Daddy, <laughs> you need to lose a bit of weight because you're pre-diabetic. And, and three weeks ago, he picked up the Real Meal Revolution and started changing his life. And we had the most amazing discussion. And the, ch the people who were responding, the number of people who said, you changed my life and it's all for good. You know, it's, it's very rewarding. And, and the, the, I also said to him, you know, I was on another podcast recently, and with some dietitians who previously had been very antagonistic. And now they said, no, 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 no. We never promoted a high carb diet. We always said carb moderation. And we've always spoken about insulin resistance. And I said, yeah, we've really, we're really making great progress. Uh, at least in South Africa, if you're a dietitian and you're dealing with the, the group who are educated, you can't talk high carb diets anymore. They, they, you just you don't have any credibility at all. Hmm. And we've we've interviewed so many people now, and your name always comes up. But <laughs> I think the one that really sticks out for me was Doug Reynolds, who um, followed the law of running and um, carb loaded, and said he felt really really ill before racing. <laughs> but then, luckily, he followed you on your journey when you changed as well. So. Yeah. No, that's, you know, I remember people telling me, you know, Doc, this diet just doesn't work for me. And you kind of ignore that. It must work. We know it works. <laughs> but <laughs> fortunately, I've learned, I've learned differently now to listen. Yeah. But don't forget that Peter Bruckner was the same. And like, he's an exercise, you know, physician as well. So he obviously had that dissonance and he was saying, what's Noakes, you know, and you were obviously academic sort of colleagues, you know, he's barking up the wrong tree, you know, and he's, you know, Peter. And he was sort of saying, well, hang on. Now, if Tim, he took a second guess and he said, yeah, well, if Tim's onto something, I might have to look at it as well. So, you know, but there is that silence. You don't know, well, you don't know how many of those silent people, as you said, that those that come to you, that have come towards you, you know, maybe there is many that are out there that are embracing it that, as you said, that personal moral courage to sort of go, I need to speak up because of that fear. And that's what I believe that Steve Finney had in the 80s when he was advocating about sort of intermittent fasting. He knew that it was potentially going to impact his career. So you have to weigh that up. You've got to feed your family at, at some point. And, you know, when you say Steve Finney, because the only reason I could get away with my trial was because people like Steve Finney had provided the data and Volek and we could present it. But go back 20 years and there wasn't, a, there wasn't that data before, before the Atkins came along and funded Eric Westman and these guys. There wasn't any data or there was data, but it wasn't high class, high quality, modern data. Hmm. So you're quite right. So I was very fortunate that I came at just the right time sure. when the information was starting to to leak out. Yeah. And yeah. I know that Eric said the same thing, that he knew that obviously um, with with Robert Atkins, he had the case, like he obviously had the case, you know, notes, that he needed to scientificize it into sort of into that rigor. And that's obviously where 
Eric in his, you know, his brilliance in being able to do the trials and to make it scientific and to make it legitimate in a scientific, um, you know, manner. So I must just tell you another little story. So Eric Westman came to Cape Town and he was asked by the endocrinologist to talk to them, you see, so at the hospital that, that, had, this, that had thrown me out. So I was invited to come, but not by the endocrinologist. So when I walked in, there was this, you could just feel the temperature rising in the room. <laughs> so, <laughs> so he explained at great length. And he gave all the evidence by the low-carb diet works, etc. And he finished up and he said, you know, why don't you just try it and do some anecdotal experiments for yourselves? Give the patients a low-carb diet and see what happens. So the professor of endocrinology says, you know, that's typical of you people. All you've got is anecdotes. So he said, excuse me, I've been speaking for 40 minutes on the data. Weren't you here? Weren't you in this room when I spoke? <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, the, the professor of endocrinology to to make a statement like that just shows how how close-minded they are. Yeah. So what changes have you seen in South Africa over the last few years? Because I find that when I talk to South Africans, and I must admit it's not many, but quite often they've heard of the Banting diet, whereas a couple of years ago here, if you'd spoken about the keto diet, it wasn't heard of. So do you see a tipping point coming anytime soon in South Africa? Um, you, you, the, the answer is that you have to tip the universities and the medical schools, and, and they're not ready for tipping, and I don't think they will tip. So what we do know is that the Real Meal Revolution brought the name Banting to South Africa and that the Banting seven-day meal plan Facebook page was set up about three or four years ago. And it, although it covers the world, most of the people there are South Africans and it has 2.3 million members, which wow. is more than any political party in South Africa. So, so that's had a huge effect. And 80% are... Kosa or Zulu-speaking South Africans. They're not coming from my area, wealthy, white males, etc. It really has percolated through the country. And one of the great moments I had was, was when I went to the airport long two years ago, three years ago, and the boom wouldn't work. And the guy controlling the boom came out. He looked at me and says, I know you. I said, you're yeah, on the banting doctor. He said, yo. And then he, he pulled up, he pulled his chest in, and he said, you see my belt? And then he showed me that it had gone three notches back. He says, I went on your diet, I lost eight kilograms. And everyone in my community, they want to know, what did I do? <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's the beauty of the beauty of this diet, is that you know within weeks it's going to work. And, and one person changing in a community can have a huge impact. So I think if you go on the ground, I can't go anywhere in South Africa without someone saying, you're the Dobanting doctor. So they know about it. And these are not always thin people who tell me that. They're often, yeah, but I'm sorry, I'm not following the Banting diet as he pats his stomach. So I think it is extremely well known in South Africa. But again, it's, it, it takes effort, as you know, because you promote it. It takes effort for these people to change. And they have to have motivation. Yeah. But I, I would think that that there are millions of South Africans who have adopted the diet. Brilliant. Absolutely fantastic. <laughs> but we're here, in, and I don't know what it's like in South Africa, um, but here in the UK, we're being told that vegetarian and particularly vegan now is the way to go. And when you, I'm, I'm not a great television watcher, but my husband has it on and, and the adverts come up and it's nearly 
all high carb stuff, but now I'm seeing lots of vegan, uh, this is vegan friendly, this is vegetarian friendly, this is vegan friendly. Where are we going to lead to with this if we if we follow their advice? Yeah. I mean, I think that's part of the, the global, you know, preventing global warming and all that argument and the global reset, which this whole vaccination story is part of it. It's controlling us completely and taking all freedom of choice away from us. That's what it is. It's producing rubbish food, which is less expensive, controlled by people like Gates and his group. So that's how I see it. And, and that the only good news is that the, the, the fake meat is failing. It's not making financial inroads. So I suspect in time it will fail and people will realize you it, the, these foods are just dreadful and they're not good for our health because they're ultra processed. I, I was just actually, as you're saying that, I was just thinking about, they're talking about how, and that we won't mention what, what's going on at the moment, but they're talking about they want to reduce the population. And so maybe actually promoting a vegan and vegetarian diet would be a good way to do it because it will be survival of the fittest and we'll be the only ones left. <laughs> Eating our biltong. But anyway, so today I was at the supermarket and um, in Bangkok here, and I went to the Western, like the Western supermarket. So it has, um, you know, loads of imported, imported things and expensive. And mostly like the lamb and the beef are, you know, frozen, imported from New Zealand, particularly. And I was in the, in the cupboard where the fridge, the fridge section where they had the bacon. So, um, and it had plant based bacon. So, and I'm going, if you're vegetarian or vegan, why do you want to eat meat substitutes? You know, like it just is this dissonance. You know, why can't it just be a plant-based patty? Why does it have to be plant-based bacon? So um, I'm just, yeah, I, I get a little confused when, um, you know, this plant-based movement has meat-like qualities or meat-like shapes, hot dogs or that's And burgers, stuff. yeah. I just do not get that. Either eat the meat or eat plants. <laughs> eat plants eat plants and good for you but we do know Jackie that there are, there are some um, keto low carb that do vegan or vegetarian so there are people that have you know and that's that's fine it can be done but it's actually quite hard to do to get enough quality sources of protein to do that so it's just unfortunate that the plant based movement is typically comes with a higher carbohydrate to be able to get bulk and satiety and and the, a lot of people that I know that eat a vegetarian diet eat are eating a lot of highly processed foods and no vegetables. Yeah, ironically, isn't it? Yeah. 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 My my son's girlfriend, she's vegetarian. She doesn't eat meat, but she doesn't eat vegetables. So she'll eat pizza and she'll eat chips. She'll eat pizza bread. Um, she'll eat corn sausages if she comes around. That's it. Yeah. What sausage? What kind of sausages? It's very sad. Oh, corn, 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 corn sausages. sausages. Corn sausages. <laughs> Pizza, chips. If she goes out to dinner, if they go out to dinner, she'll have pizza bread and chips. You know, that's a that's really poor good. quality diet. But I mean, obviously, it's I know. Like, oh my lord! It makes me really sad. It makes me really sad. She's a lovely girl. I remember converting one of the South Africa's top triathletes, Ultraman triathletes, and. Looking at his diet, when he was eating this high-carb diet, it was full of rubbish. And then when he went on the high-fat diet, now he only ate proper foods and his performances went up and he became the 
he set the South African champion record. I mean, but you can see there was so much Coke and chips and cakes and things in the diet. It's no wonder that you, I think they get away with it because they eat so much. They probably just get enough nutrients in. But if they weren't eating all that, they wouldn't get in the, the nutrients, wouldn't get in the right nutrients. So one of the things I find when I'm trying to get the message across is that people are, they're so scared of fat and they're so scared of eggs particularly. Um, what, what can you, what advice would you give to these people? Well, eggs are the second most nutritious, nutritious foods on the planet behind liver. So, you know, that's what you need in the diet as much as you can every day. So let's eat lots of eggs. The old idea that cholesterol is contained in the eggs and that, well, let, let's just move on from that one. That's got no basis, in fact, at all. Hmm. Is there a maximum number of eggs you would say don't go over? You you name the no maximum and that's that's fine. <laughs> More than you can eat. I tell people 36 eggs a day. Exactly. <laughs> Who wants to eat 36 eggs a day? That's right. That's right. Other than Paul Newman in that film, Cool Hand Luke. <laughs> so... Professor Tim, we've asked in our Fabulously Keto Facebook group, we asked our members if they had any questions for you. So yeah. can I put some questions to you, oh. prefacing it with you're not their doctor and this is not medical advice. Um, so Alison asks if you've got any tips for peri or menopausal ladies struggling to lose weight. Yeah, Alison, what I've learned in the last six months is that you need to cut the fat in the diet and increase the protein intake. So it's really interesting because I started, I read T. Ted Neyman's book, The P.E. Ratio, and he talks about you want foods which have lots of protein because they carry the nutrients, the foods that are protein dense or nutrient dense, and you don't want to have too much energy in terms of carbohydrates and fats. And so that shifted my diet away from the fatty meat to the leaner meats and more chicken and also less cheese. I was eating a lot of cheese, a lot of dairy, and I still do, but I started supplementing with, with protein. And so I was eating more when I would, before I would eat biltong, Louise mentioned biltong, which is dried meat, but I would go for the fatty cuts. I don't go for the fatty cuts anymore. So I started doing this and then uh, the, the diet doctor, Andreas Infeld, he said, I've lost X kilograms recently and I've lost some weight, some around my, some circumference around my waist. And I've been low carbs for 23 years. What do you think I did? And there were 100 people answered. And I was the 101st. I said, you've increased your protein intake and you're doing CrossFit gym. So he said, no, I'm not doing CrossFit, but I have increased my protein intake. And if you watch the diet doctor, you'll see that he's promoting a high protein diet. So I think that we often we don't get enough protein. And when, when I started this diet, I was high fat and I went for the fat and it helped me and I lost the 20 kilograms, just like that. But I'm finding that with the protein, I'm losing a little bit more now. So it's, and I'm losing the fat that I don't need. So, so I think that's the reason. Eat more protein. The thinnest lady in our gym eats 60% protein. I asked her because I'd watched her losing this weight subcutaneous fat and I said what are you eating she said I'm eating 60% protein now the textbooks say you can't eat that much and, I, and she said you know I can't eat fat much too much fat because I've got a gallbladder disease or whatever and it didn't really suit me but with the protein and her strength's gone up and she's looking fantastic 
So there's something in increasing the protein intake if your weight is stored. I don't. Wow. Dis- I don't disagree I- with you. Um, with with women, particularly, you know, perimenopausal menopausal women need more protein to obviously maintain their lean body mass. Obviously, they need to lean body mass means you know stronger bone density, mineral bone density. But the only problem is, I get to a tipping point and my blood sugars start to increase. Why mm. is that? Yeah. With increased protein consumption, yeah, I don't know. That that's that's a mystery. That's that's a mystery, and I'm not sure about that. And so one mm. has to ask: Is that absolutely dangerous or not? I don't know. So you're quite right. I, you're quite right. That that's an unanswered question. It, it also, was, Louise, your your blood sugars are still in the normal range. Oh, absolutely. They're just a lot higher than yes. they normally are for you. Yeah, for me, for, for yours my are very range. Low. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm not I'm semi insulin sensitive, but what I was noticing was it was incrementally like 0.5, and for me, 0.5 that range with my daily testing, um, it was more noticeable because I did a, a bit of an experiment. I like to experiment with a higher higher protein, lower fat, and being perimenopausal. So it was, it was sort of, I'll try a bit of the PE thing. And it was just, I noticed that I pushed, it pushed something into, I didn't lose weight. Um, so, uh, yeah, so it was, it was for me, for my body type, what has been working is any intermittent fasting. So intermittent fasting has been the thing that has stopped me from that menopausal weight gain that I, that I did. So this leads on to another question from Emma. And maybe you won't have the answer to that either, because she said, can you speak about why blood sugars would still be high at 120 to 170 after four weeks on a carnivore diet? Uh, yeah, because you're insulin resistant and pre-diabetic. And that, that's my situation. Absolutely. So unfortunately for some of us, we're too insulin resistant. We're not secreting. The insulin that we're secreting isn't enough and it's not working properly. And the simple answer is just you do need to add something like metformin. And metformin can probably bring those values down to the normal range. So, so that would be my advice. Uh, the carnivore diet's fantastic and amazing. And for most people, if you were pre-diabetic, it'll put you probably into remission. But for some of us, we're unfortunately too far advanced towards the right with diabetes. And our system is so insulin resistant that we still just not, we can't quite correct it. But take metformin and then accept what your results are, but never go more than 25 to 50 grams of carbs a day. And I think that you're doing the best you can. You must remember that all our predictions for people with diabetes and their HbA1Cs and their fasting glucose is on people eating high carbohydrate diets. So they're getting hyperinsulinemia all the time and they're not measuring the, high, the insulinemia, which is the problem. If you're not insulinemic, I'm not sure that a, that a glucose of 120, it doesn't mean the same as 120 if you are hyperinsulinemic and eating a high carbohydrate diet. So, so one's going to be much better off on the carnivore diet already, but you can improve still further by just taking some metformin and I wouldn't would never advise insulin. If you if the metformin doesn't work at, at like two grams a day, whatever it is that you accept that that's your value, and see if you can maybe fasting more, maybe using berberin, maybe using other things might help. But but I wouldn't be too too anxious about it. 
It's being mm. on the dot that's the key. That's what's really helping you. Can you just explain Excellent. what berberine is? Yeah, it's. I, I think it's. Uh, that's a great question because I haven't looked at it lately. I think it's a plant-based product. And it is used in the management of diabetes and does lower blood glucose levels. It's not as effective as metformin. It doesn't drop the values as much, but it might drop just a little bit and that might make people feel healthier. But it's, it is not a pharmaceutical product. Right. It's, it is a natural it's a, product. It's a supplement. Yeah, yeah, I've heard that a few times. Like, a, like yeah. the turmeric, like the curcumin sort of thing. So That's exactly right. Basically. Which is really interesting because I did see on one of those Twitter low-carb doctors recommend an adrenal supplement with berberine so for one of his um, perimenopausal women. So, yeah, I was interested to sort of see what the combination yeah. is. But that's great for Emma. So I hope Emma actually gets a lot out of that because we, we interviewed Emma and she has quite a backstory of many, many chronic um conditions but she's you know quite sort of you know cured um cured in remission with with low carb keto so she will certainly appreciate that sort of good advice for her so i think we've got one more jackie emma Emma, very few people are perfect you know you you can't get the perfect blood profile in everyone and i think you just have to live with it and but the key drivers in diabetes is insulin insulin if you've got your insulin down that's if you wanted to ask what should you measure to, to help you, measure your insulin two or three times a day for one day and see what results are. And if the values are below five, you're doing fantastically. You, you're going to be extremely well. Yeah. So I've got two more questions. So Nicola is also a network nutrition advisor and she's done a lot of network nutrition um, courses. She asked, what's your opinion on low-carb, high-fat diet for being used for the treatment of Alzheimer's? I think there's a lot of interesting information on that. I think you probably will even better to have ketone supplementation. I think that's, I think the, the, the ketosis is what's really helpful in Alzheimer's disease. And I think that if I had was advising people, I would say, think of giving some supplements, the ketone supplements and see whether they make a difference. Because that will tell you if they make a difference, then the diet is also going to make a difference. And the thing about the ketone supplements, and I, I was given some, and I went, my ketones went from 0.3 to 3 in 30 minutes. I mean, it's astonishing. Now, for me to get to value of 3, I have to fast for a day and run a marathon. Then I can get values of 3. But the, the supplements push your ketones up very quickly. So, so if the ketones are going to work, you should be able to see that uh, with supplementation over a week or two. And that'll tell you that's the way to go. I think the evidence that that the brain becomes insulin resistant and that's a key driver of Alzheimer's disease is very strong. And if that is the case, the ketones, by providing a different fuel, will make a difference. And incidentally, I was just reading yesterday that, that the brain will burn ketones in direct proportion to the concentration in the bloodstream. So if you've got a value of three, it's going to be burning much more ketones than if it's a value of three, 0.3. So, and there's no limit. The more ketones in the bloodstream, the more ketones the brain's going to burn. So it's it seems to me that that's one of the ideal supplements. The other one, is, by the way, is lactate. Lactate. So another way to <laughs> to treat Alzheimer's might be to do high intensity exercise. I'm I'm just laughing. I'm just giving a joke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, run them round the block. <laughs> kind of imagine, marathon. Yeah, my grandmother who was you know. So she got quite quite acute sort of, or not the quite the quite demented demented sort of you know 
the fetal ball dementia. I was sort of, yeah, maybe mm. in her wheelchair we were running around the block. Not. <laughs> but it, it's interesting because there's still that sort of myth, isn't there, that the more ketones that you have, the more fat you're burning. But that's still one of those keto myths in, in the, in the ketosphere. That's right. That's right. Yeah. But then, but obviously for brain consumption, it's better to have higher mm. ketones. Oh, yeah. than, that's cool. Yeah. But not, not in terms of weight loss okay um aranda asks seems to me that exercise works better as part of a healthy lifestyle after the recovery of when energy sorry after recovery when energy levels mood and general health are all improved and that early on in recovery it's better to focus on diet i.e real food um low carb high fat with h standing for healthy rather than high okay low carb healthy fat um before recovery especially early on better to focus on general movement and increasing activity level like walking and exercise well within the comfort zone and he asked for your thoughts absolutely absolutely correct i worked with a group of young doctors in canada who started taking groups and putting them on the low carb diet and they did a whole lot of things and they would change things to see what worked best. So it wasn't a randomized control trial. They'd do an experiment and show that didn't work. Okay, we don't include that in the next step. And they found actually, if you take large people and make them exercise, they lose less weight as they adapt to the diet. And I think that's, I've always said, focus on one thing. You know, you, you've got one stress, focus on nutrition. And the beauty of this diet is you lose weight so quickly. If you're going to lose weight, you lose it so quickly. You get motivated the second week, you're motivated the third week, you're motivated. Whereas running is difficult. If you're heavy, it's difficult. Exercises, it's, it makes you painful and sore and you get out of bed and you feel not so great. That I tell people, when, you, when you're ready to exercise, the body will tell you. It'll say, one day you'll get out and say, you know, I really want to go for a walk today. I want to go and start running. And you yeah. wait till that moment and then you do it. Yeah. Well, that's what I tell my clients as well. I say, don't change any exercise. Whatever you do, fine. If that's what you're already doing, great. But just carry on with whatever you're doing because the food side is so much, you know, it's 80% of it. So mm -hmm. we need to focus on the food. And if you over-exercise, you're going to want to eat more. So but I think it doesn't help. For me, when I was 135 kilos, you know, I was this morbidly obese woman and I thought, you know, you had to eat less, move more. But moving 135 kilos was a stress. It was so stressful. So, you know, and not so much the humiliation, but when I was doing personal training three times a week because that's what I thought I needed to do, eat less, move more. But this, this was, you know, it was hard. You know, it was so hard to move. But... Once I, you know, obviously got to obviously after the real meal revolution and eating eating low carb, there was this I don't know what this energy was. You know, there was this sort of this you know I I don't know. There was this day or week or days that you just had this agitation. You wanted to move. Your body was fueled adequately. You could have this sense of you know. Oh, I've got energy for that. I can keep all powering on all day. You know, it was it was wonderful. You know, it was maybe the mood and the the mental health aspects were were improved as well. So, yeah, I I have one more question because it's something that that um, somebody I know has end stage liver disease, and I'm wondering 
at that point, is it too late to do anything or is it worth adopting a it is keto strategy? It's never too late. And end-stage liver disease will be linked to cirrhosis of the liver, probably due to non-alcoholic fatty liver disease or alcoholism. And it's all going to be helped by getting the fat out of the liver. And that's what you do with a low-carb diet. So his, his, his or her metabolism will definitely improve on the low-carb diet. Whether that's going to make any major difference at this stage, I don't know. But I would absolutely advise it. Yeah. Great. Thank you. So, Professor Tim, where can the world um, contact you on social media? Yeah, well, so I'm at Prof Tim Noakes on Twitter. But you might probably want to go to the Noakes Foundation on the website. So if you go to the Nutrition Network or the Noakes Foundation, that will you'll get some contacts there and you'll see what we do. And, and there's contacts that can be made through that. Okay. So can you give... Oh, you, you've given a few tips to some of the people that ask questions, but just an overall general three top tips for people. Yeah, I think firstly, the low-carb diet is critically important for our health if you're insulin resistant. And people real, need to realize that it's no good getting to my age of 70 and then realizing, oh my gosh, I got it all wrong. It's better to change at 30 or 40 and then you can you live longer. And I, people who are obese are not going to live long. People who are insulin resistant, eating high carbs, are not going to live long. They, we now know that all these chronic diseases are directly linked to insulin resistance and high carb diets. So to prevent the diabetes, dementia, obesity, cancer even, best to start the low carbohydrate diet as soon as possible. The other point I've made was I think that uh, for many of us, it's just don't overdo the, the fat. For many people, a little more protein is helpful. And finally, exercise, absolutely critical. I obviously spend my life promoting long-distance running, endurance exercise. I'm now in the gym. I'm doing CrossFit, and I think that's, that's an amazing way to exercise. The, the evidence is clear that explosive exercise for 15, 20 minutes a week is incredibly healthy. So explosive, high-intense exercise is very important. Great. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you so much for your time today. It's been absolutely wonderful and keep up the good work. Thank you both for a lovely interview. I really appreciate Great. it. Thank right. You. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Well, I have to thank you, Jackie, for inviting Prof Notes onto the podcast. It was really great to see him again and Yes, Jackie, this was not my first time in speaking with Prof Noakes. Not that I'm wanting to sound like I've been hobnobbing, but <laughs> I got to see him at the PHC conference back in 2018. Oh, yeah. So, uh, yeah, it was a real privilege then. I was fangirling um, and went up to him and really let him know that he was instrumental in, in my journey. Yeah. I, I kept my fangirling under control this time. Did you notice? Yes, you did really well. So <laughs> unlike with uh, Dr. Brian Lenskis, I mean, you let your fangirl hang out and wave it all about then, but um, yeah. Yeah, you're, you're a remarkably cool calm, like a cucumber. I'm, I'm getting more professional as we go on. <laughs> <laughs> what was the highlight for you for this episode? I think for me... It's the fact that he was now maybe it's 
it's the time of his career where he was in his career and who knows what it would have been if it would have been earlier in his career but for me it was the fact that he stood up and said I was wrong and I'm willing to fight for that because a lot of people if they'd have been in his situation might have backed down might have not followed through and I think for people to stand up to their convictions and say, this is not right, um, we have to do something about this, I think is really, really powerful and very important because, you know, maybe things would change quicker if more medical professionals would stand up and say, no, we need to support this, whatever it is, along whatever you know, trajectory within the medical profession. We can't just do, keep doing the same old things. Um, it's like that quote from what's attributed to Einstein, you know, what's this, the um, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing and expecting a different result. If we're not getting the results, then then we should change. You know, if this was a business, I don't know, you know, in, in the US it is more of a business, but here in the UK, the NHS, if it was a business and it was failing and it wasn't working, they would go out of business. So why are they carrying on pushing something that doesn't work? That's a really great example where, as a researcher, to, as you said, he did this complete 180, you know, where he was had previously been researching, advocating, sponsoring and developing the role of you know, carbohydrates in athletic performance to completely do that 180 and, as you said, change the trajectory of his research career, his academic reputation, really speaks to the man and his belief and being true to his beliefs. And I think that that's a real character integrity for him to, to speak to the, to the truth in upholding his belief system. Yeah. So what was the highlight for you? I think it's really about that, that that moral compass and speaking to the truth and the truth for him and staying true to his values. And he is not ashamed or backward in coming forward to say, I was wrong. And that's that speaks to, as I said, that, that character being true to himself. He did, as he said, put himself in the fall in 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 the firing line, and that also really resonates, being an Australian, to the stories of both Jen Elliott, who a dietitian, and Gary Fetke, the orthopedic surgeon, and the role of the regulator to protect the public's in the public's interest. The regulator being the registration body, similar to your HCPC in the UK, and it really is a a bit of a philosophical debate about in whose interest, you know, whose interest are they protecting when the standard of care is so wrong, which will remind the listeners that we were speaking to Nick Norowitz and he was mentioning about the consensus statement that having a consensus statement to stand by, it really protects those health professionals to say that this is the standard of practice, this is what we are guided by, this is what we agree on. So that obviously can then 
butt heads with the regulatory bodies, but to sort of say, well, no, this is what we believe in. This is our practice and we can stand by this as a group. Yeah, so, and that's the, the role of the SMHP. Mm. To, yeah, the Society of the Practicing. Yeah. Metabolic health practitioners yeah to Mm. change that standard of care because the standard of care with a low-carb diet is very different to the general standard of care correct but then again i suppose it all you know gets to that evidence-based practice and the evidence is slowly changing that's being published by those professional bodies such as or advocacy bodies you know the dietetics associations where they're actually saying that we can be more flexible in the prescription and individualizing those prescriptions so there are obviously associations now that have embraced or incorporated their consensus statements position statements around the role of therapeutic restriction of carbohydrates Mm. so it's as you said that groundswell is slowly changing but we have some quite pioneers in that and you know we shouldn't say that they all have to sort of die on the sword live by the sword die on the sword there's many as we know many people within the phc in the uk as well as in australia leading quietly unassumedly those unsung heroes leading the way in their practice and we thank them for that yeah absolutely so jackie where can we find the show notes for prof Noak's episode so the show notes will be at fabulouslyketo.com forward slash podcast forward slash zero five six in appreciation for professor tim Noakes's time the fabulously keto podcast has made a donation to the Noakes foundation and I am sure that they would appreciate any support from any of our listeners. Thanks, Jackie. It would be great if you could support us through Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash fabulously keto and you can choose the monthly amount you wish. Can you recommend a guest we can interview? If you can, click on the link in the show notes to send us your recommendation. Would you like to join our Facebook group? Search for Fabulously Keto on Facebook. Our Facebook page is called Fabulously Keto and you can follow us there. Or you can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Fabulously Keto. Or follow us on Instagram, Fabulously Keto 1. Did you enjoy the show? Let us know you listened by tagging us in your Insta story or Instagram post using the handle fabulouslyketo1 and the hashtag TFKP. All the links are on the website and in the show notes. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast, click the subscribe button. Reviews help us to be found and reach new listeners. Please leave a review of our show on your preferred podcast listening platform. We appreciate you taking the time and read them all. Disclaimer. The information in this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. Nothing in this podcast can be taken as advice. Whether our guests are doctors, healthcare professionals or not, they're only sharing their own opinions and stories and this does not constitute a doctor-patient relationship. It's always best to seek professional medical advice 
should you wish to make any changes to your current medication or treatments. Also speak to your own doctor if you have any concerns about your health or you wish to make lifestyle changes, especially if you're taking medication.